Well, amen. If you would, church, uh, open to John 18. John chapter 18. We looked at this passage last week and we'll come back at it again. Uh, Go a little further. We'll read from 1 to 11. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with His disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some of the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said to him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that, had been, that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants and cut off his ear, his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Lord has given me? Father, what a moment in human history to think about right now. Nothing in our lives mattered as much as what was happening in this garden that night. No uh, event this week, no event this coming week comes close to paralleling the significance of this moment. All of human history circles around these hours in the garden and right after the garden. And so, Father, we just pray for understanding from Your Spirit. We pray that we would not merely understand, but You would take us beyond that and change us. Lord, Your Word is truth. Sanctify us by Your truth. Lord, we ask that You would do that for Your name's sake, because You love us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I spent uh, a lot of time uh, this week on this passage, um, more than normal, and in preparation, and I was really just taken back by verse 11 and uh, what Jesus says about the cup so much that I finally, at the end of the week, just had to put it away and say, we'll get there next week, and I've got to say something before that. Um, and I uh, wrote a few sermons on that, and then uh, yesterday the kids and Priscilla were out for a few hours, and I sat down and uh, there was a few things in my heart to, to point out here about Christ, so that's what we'll look at today. Um, I don't know if 
Y'all have this problem. I think one of the <clears throat> one of the things that's most discouraging to me is my lack of faithfulness to Christ. Um, you know, this week I was reading in uh, Joshua twenty three. And read this phrase, it says, Be careful to love the Lord your God. Be very careful to love the Lord your God. And I, I was just thinking, how can I do that? Unless I know more of the Lord my God. How, how can I love Him more? And John 20 says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And I think, for, I, think I can speak for all of us. We all suffer from a low quality of life. And I don't, I don't mean uh, the food we eat and our health care and, and, and our homes and all of these type things. I mean a low quality of spiritual life. Power, peace, joy. We don't have what we need. And Jesus says, I wrote all these things about Jesus in this gospel so that you might believe and have life. And you say, how do I get this life? How can the life increase? And, and it's believing. It's seeing more of who Christ is. It says at the beginning of this gospel, uh, we see His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so when we see His glory, we will be very careful to love Him. That's the connection. You see His glory, love increases. Being very careful to love Him, the only way forward is to know Him. And we do that through this gospel. And there's a word that's continually jumped out at us in the study of the, of the gospel of John, and that's the word abide. We did a few sermons on this word, and I just I couldn't get past the word, even though that word doesn't show up in our passage today. The concept, the theme is still there. And um, John was so impacted by Jesus' use of this word abide that in his epistle, 1 John, uh, he actually says it about 20 times. Uh, teaching on assurance of salvation, so he'll say, if you abide in me, you can know that you're mine, that you are a disciple. And, um, and he got all of this from John 15. Let me just remind us what Jesus said in John 15, 4. This is so significant. Jesus says, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me, and my words, look at the connection, abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. 
just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So why does abiding matter? It's how we glorify Him. It's how we bear fruit. It's how we know His love. And then He adds, lastly, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so abiding matters. And Jesus prayed about this in John 17. We spent a lot of time looking at that. He's essentially asking the Father, Lord, make these disciples abide in me. Continue with me, not fall away. This is really the essence of that whole prayer. But look at how clear Jesus says it in John 8.31. If you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples. Listen to this. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So abiding is how we know we're a disciple. In our day, everybody's a disciple who says they're a disciple. That's how it works, basically, in evangelicalism. You say you're a disciple, you're a disciple. Not with Christ. Christ says, if you abide in my word, you are truly a disciple. And I love the balance that the scripture even gives us on something like this because we have like a propositional truth. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. But then you go, well, how do I do that? How does that really work? And then we get an example. We get an illustration. We get a narrative to show us what abiding looks like, which is what our passage does. And I need that type thing. I don't know about you. I need need, uh, illustrations. I need someone to show me how to do something often. I, I don't, you know, if you get a new job and someone goes, okay, you got the job, great, now do it. And you're like, well, could you show me how? It would be helpful to have someone show me, you know, or you're trying to fix something in your house. I don't, I, I'm not a, a great handyman, so if there's instructions or something, I, I want to avail myself of those. My, how do I fix the thing if I don't have instructions? And if there's not instructions, I'll get on YouTube and watch a video. Because I need somebody to show me. I can't just figure out that stuff on my own. And that's how abiding works. We need someone to show us how to do this. How do you abide with Christ? And again, John 18, I think, will show us what this looks like. And as I've meditated on this, there's really two categories here I want to point us to. Uh, and these will be kind of two points to the sermon. What, what do we do to abide in Christ I would say this is grace-enabled, spirit-driven abiding, as to use the, the phrase of uh, Kevin DeYoung. Grace-driven, spirit-enabled abiding. But you do it. But it's by the grace of God, and it's by the Spirit of God. And then the second point is, uh, what does Christ do to persevere us? And so those are the two main categories. Abide. That's what the disciple does by God's grace and his spirit's enabling. And then persevere, that's what Christ does to us by his spirit's power and for his glory. Let's take these one at a time. Uh, First, abide. Look at verse 1. He went out with his disciples. He abides with them. They abide with him. He went out with his disciples. Disciples. Mark 3.13 says it like this. He, after he had chosen the twelve, he, it says that he, he chose the twelve that they may be with him. That's abiding. And then when they, when they leave this upper room, so we're thinking that night what happened, they're in the upper room, he's given the upper room discourse, and he says, now let's leave and go to the garden, and what do they do? 
they go with him. They remain with him. They, they follow and trust him and go where he leads, even into the dark garden, which is what a disciple does. We know that our, our, our shepherd, because he's a good shepherd, he leads us into green pastures and beside still waters. But a good shepherd also leads into the valley of the shadow of death. He, but he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And he's with us. And, and, and a real disciple goes with him into green pastures and still waters and into dark, difficult trials because the shepherd's with them and he's leading them there. And he's with them there. And that's what these disciples are, are following. You know, a false disciple, one way you can find a false disciple is they kind of make deals and negotiate with, with God. Um, they'll say, you know, if you fix this and work out this in my life, and if you do this, then I'll follow you. And then when that stuff doesn't happen, they're gone. True disciples abide. They remain. They continue. Even when things fall apart, even when life falls apart, and it seems like God is giving us only curses and not blessing, uh, a true disciple abides. They say what Job said, shall, shall we receive good from the Lord and not evil? Both blessings and trials, and, and even many times, those of you who are more mature know that many of the trials are actually blessings. Because the Lord, in His kindness, for those who love Him, works all things for their good. And He, he is a masterful shepherd. If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you. That's the connection. Look at what He says here. Verse 1, when He had spoken these words. You see that very beginning of verse 1. When He had spoken these words... What words is he referring to? We talked about this last week. He's referring to chapter 13 through 17. Everything he said moments before that, before they get into the garden, the whole upper room discourse, when he had spoken these words. So in his final hours with the disciples, he's talking to them and they are listening. And there's no discipleship without teaching. The Bible says, go therefore and make disciples, hugging them, no. Giving them a, a shoulder to cry on? No. Go therefore make disciples teaching them. Every healthy church understands the centrality of teaching. What's happening in this moment? Uh, when we go to city groups, the word of God is opened and taught. That's central. Even in a city group, we're eating, we're fellowshipping, we're doing all these things, but the teaching is central. The counseling room, Kent mentioned our counseling ministry. All the counselors in this church know they are not just a friend. Uh, uh, someone to give them a Kleenex so they, someone can just talk. And we're not, we're not therapists. We're ministers of the Word. Because the Word has power. The Word transforms. Now, we need to comfort. We need to bear one another's burdens. But the Word is the transformative instrument. You know... I, this may step on somebody's toes, but I, I do think it needs to be said. Everybody wants to talk about community in our day. This is a huge end. 
community, community, community. This is always discussed and desired. And I will point out, these disciples of Jesus, they don't grow because Peter's a good friend to John. And they gave him a shoulder to cry on, and he was a brother there to kind of hear him when he was going through a hard time. It's not why he grew. That's not why Peter and John endured. They endured because of Christ's teaching and because of the spirit that he gave them. And that's not to devalue community and friendships and all those things. That's just to lift up the primacy of the word. We, we overvalue community and we undervalue teaching. And what we need to do is redefine the word community so that it's word-centered. It, it, it has the word uh, central in our relationships. And this is how Jesus ministered. He, he had times that he proclaimed truths to crowds and they just listened. Nobody interrupted. It was a monologue. And then there were times Jesus interacted with questions and it was more of a dialogue similar to our city groups. Other type of settings, family worship, things like that. Both of those are discipleship. But notice the centrality of the word in both. And, and by the way, if someone claims to be a disciple, but then they don't pay attention to the word, they never listen to the word, they never want to come and hear the word, they're not a disciple. By definition, a disciple is a learner of Christ, a, a listener, someone who takes his word seriously. So someone who doesn't take Christ's word seriously, they can call themselves a disciple. They aren't one. Jesus said, go therefore, make disciples, teaching them to what? Obey. So it's not just the teaching and the hearing. Not, we're not just hearers of the word only, but doers, obeyers. That's abiding. So we abide as we receive and obey and submit to Christ's teaching. Now let me add another layer to this. Um, we abide through discipline and repetition. So look at verse 2. It says, this little phrase, the place where Jesus often met with his disciples. He often met with his disciples. Uh, many make very little progress uh, because they meet with Jesus so little. I don't mature as they should. They, they remain babes in Christ, as Paul calls them, always on the milk of the word, can't handle the meat. Why? Because they never meet with Jesus. They don't often meet with Jesus like these men. Everything's feelings-based. It's all about convenience. When I get to it, it always Christ and, and time with Him always gets pushed to the back burner because everything else is more pressing and more important. And they wonder why they don't grow and why they don't have joy and why there's so much spiritually lacking. And notice these men. Jesus often met with these disciples, and he didn't force them to be there. He didn't carry them and hold their hand. They showed up. They walked there. They sat down. They listened. They prayed. They sang. They worshipped. I was talking to a, um, a minister of, a, of another church here locally the other day, and uh, he was a discipleship minister, and we were talking about different types of discipleship and things. And we both agreed that the most important part of discipleship is someone reprioritizing their life around Christ and His will and, his, and, and, and following Him 
And only when you make it part of your lifestyle do you really uh, begin to be a, a faithful disciple, when it, when it becomes part of your lifestyle. So, for example, um, you, you don't see mature believers going, do I feel like going to church today? They just don't think like that. They're there. If they're breathing, they're not sick, they're there. Right? This is, you, don't, you don't see them going, man, I've had a hard day. I don't know if I'm going to go to city group today. Well, look, if we, were, if we were doing it like that, nobody would ever go to city group. We always have hard days. Right? There's just, this isn't how we think. Jesus often met with his disciples. I'm sure many times they didn't feel like it. They had hard days. They showed up. They were with Christ. Acts 2, the church, it says, after Christ's resurrection, he leaves them there on earth, and they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread into prayer. Why did they, why were they able to devote themselves to those things? Was it not because Christ taught them to be devoted to those things? When he discipled them for those three years? Acts chapter 6, the apostles, it says, devoted themselves to the word of God in prayer. Could that be that that's what they saw Christ prioritize? The word of God in prayer? In Acts 16, in the prison, they get arrested. And what are they doing in the prison? Singing hymns. Where did they learn to sing hymns in the moment of trial? What about the night that Christ was crucified? He sang hymns, it says, before he left the upper room. Mark 14, Matthew 26, it says they sang a hymn together before they left and went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Ever pick that out? You go, how did they do that? They didn't have a screen. They didn't have hymnals. How did they sing together in the upper room? Repetition. They did it all the time. They knew the songs. Now, I think it's important to say that they weren't good at it. I don't just mean singing. I mean any of the spiritual disciplines. They weren't good at them because Jesus, what happened in the garden, they're, they're sleeping, okay, when they're supposed to be praying. Uh, you remember the story, and this is in Luke 22. Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. And then it, and then it says, when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to them, why are you sleeping? I just, every time I read that, I just think I would have been taking a nap also. I, I just, I don't think I would be there sweating tears or drops of blood with Christ. Fervent, I would have been seeing it's the middle of the night, Christ. Like, we're often sleeping when it is a moment of temptation and we should not be. I, let me just say this too. Um, this is the beginning of our week, right? Lord's Day. First day of the week. You're here to not be sleeping. Spiritually, apathetically. There's a lot of people who come to church and they aren't there mentally. You're already thinking the, the week ahead. Right? You're not here. You're, you might as well be sleeping. You're not thinking about it. You're not singing. You're not praying. And it's a moment of temptation. Think of what awaits you this week. Think of all that awaits you. And how many people come to church, start their week just sleeping. 
sleeping through it. That's how we are. We're, we're often like this. And Jesus even said to the disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh, it's weak. We're, we're, we're very much like these disciples. And I think that's why repetition and discipline is so important. You see Jesus even here, this is interesting, in this text from verse uh, 4 to 8, he says, why or who do you seek? He says it three times. Who do you seek? Who do you seek? Who do you seek? And then he says, I am he, I am he, I am he, three times. And I don't know the reason for that other than that uh, one simple reason is just that Jesus often repeated himself. He wasn't against repetition. He wasn't against discipline. Uh, the Gospel of John says the word believe 98 times. Jesus preached some of the same sermons over and over again. You know, sometimes as, as parents, I hear parents go, man, why do I even teach my kids? It's like they don't listen or, or understand what I'm saying. Repetition. That's why you do it. You pour truth into their minds over and over and over and over and over again, and then the Holy Spirit can use that later. He can bring it to understanding, can bring it to remembrance. This is what Christ did with these 12. They didn't understand all that he was teaching them in the moment. But later, the Holy Spirit would give them remembrance and understanding. This is part of discipleship. Jesus used repetition. Um, let me do a, I want to say a side note here because it occurred to me, uh, thinking on this, that Jesus also, when it says he went out with his disciples, these were men. They weren't women. He chose 12 men. Now, he loves women as equal to men. There's no favoritism here. But can we not acknowledge the fact that he, kept, he picked 12 men? And is there anything significant about that? I think there is. I think men have been given a place of leadership in the home and in the church. And, and I've said this recently, that when a culture is weak, put it at the feet of the men. You know, when, when you find a church that's weak, where are the men? It's not the women and I don't blame the women and kids for a, a church that isn't doing what they're supposed to. That's, the, that's on the men. What about in a home that's disorderly and chaotic and every, there's just sin and chaos and it's just a mess? Who's, who's to blame? The, the kids? Is it their fault? Is it the wife? No, it's the man. Why did Jesus pick men? Because men influence things for the good and for the bad. Is why we did the men's internship these last two years where we've just spent hours together studying biblical manhood. I don't know if we made a dent in the amount of help that we need as men moving forward on that, but we're trying to emphasize the importance of men. I've spent way more time pastorally with men than with women. I mean, if I go back and tally up the amount of hours one-on-one -on -one with people throughout the years, I mean, it's like 90% men. And, I, and that's not because I don't love women. I think that's the biblical pattern. That is because I love women and because I love children. Acts 16.3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Timothy then said in Titus 2.2, 2, What you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
And men also, and I don't want to, I'm not saying this to puff men up again to make them superior to women in any form or fashion. We probably just need more help than the women many times. Um, and, and Peter certainly did here. Uh, Jesus had to correct him, and that's the third part of abiding, is that you receive correction. I don't think you can have a true discipleship without correction. It's essential. Those who make any progress in Christ-likeness uh, do so because you're willing to be corrected. I mean, some of you are so humble, you'll take a correction and actually learn from it. You know how rare that is? Most people just get mad and offended. Some of you actually receive a correction and use it to grow. That's amazing. And that's why you've made progress. And, and that's, I think, how Peter made progress. He took heed to the many corrections that he got from Christ. You know, and Jesus says to him in verse 11, put your sword in its sheath, Peter. It's a correction. And I know, I know that verse is used by every pacifist in the world to say we shouldn't have wars and all this stuff. I don't think that's what Christ is saying. I think he's saying my kingdom doesn't advance like that with war and violence. And you wouldn't know that looking at the history of Christendom. <laughs> if you've ever read much church history, you're like, did they just miss this verse? Like, they advanced Catholicism and Protestantism with the sword for many years and thought they were doing the Lord's work. And it seems quite clear Jesus is saying, this is not the way I want my kingdom to advance. I mean, it started, all started with a Roman Emperor. Constantine, who in a dream, he saw in a dream, conquer by this sign. And so he took that as from the Lord. Probably wasn't. Don't think it was. He misinterpreted it, if it was. He puts a cross on all his men and tells them to go conquer in the name of Christ and kill all these others. And it, and it started uh, a mess in church history. Now, if we go back to the text and just look at what's happening, it is a little bit difficult to understand because Peter looks spiritually schizophrenic. All right, one minute he's apathetic and he's sleeping with the other disciples. Looks like he could care less. And the next minute he's grabbing a sword with this misguided zeal. And <laughs> just go like... You didn't care a minute ago. Now you're sitting there willing to cut off a guy's head, which he's trying to go for the head. I'll talk about that next week. Um, and he just gets the right ear. But Jesus rebukes him and says, put your sword away, which I don't think is a rebuke only for Peter. I think that's a rebuke for all people who would seek to advance the kingdom with a sword. Guys, who are you mad at? Put down the sword. Who hurts you? And you want it to come back on them. Put your sword away. It's time to forgive. Who do you want to get vengeance? And the Lord says to you, put the sword away. I'll handle this a different way. So often, we go, Jesus, I know I'm going to pray more. We're like Peter. I'm, I'm not going to sleep in the garden anymore. I'm going to grab the sword. I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I, I can take down this enemy. It won't prevail. And Jesus goes, put your sword away. This isn't how it's going to happen. 
You're trying to win your own victories, your own way. Jesus says, put the sword away. I was reading in Joshua this morning. Tell me this isn't providential. Reading in, in the, the last chapter of Joshua, you know Joshua, he's conquering all these lands. This is Old Covenant, okay? And um, fighting battle after battle. And in the last chapter, it says this, It was not your sword that won. That was God's word to Joshua. You didn't fight. I fought. We need to hear this. Second Kings 6. Remember this story? The king of Syria was warring against Israel. He sent horses and chariots and great armies to surround the city. Everybody's uh, waking up and saying, is going, what do we do? And they said, don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elijah prayed and said, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he might see. So the Lord opened his eyes and he saw that the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. As we, we don't fight like that. We don't believe all these things that we see and all the things going on are flesh and blood. We don't believe that as Christians. Some of you are just trying to fight the will of God continually and wondering why you keep losing. Put the sword down. Surrender. Not to your enemy, but to the Lord, and the Lord will fight your enemy. Can I, can I speak to marriages for a moment? Put down the sword. It's not worth it. It's not worth it, husbands. She's precious. Be not harsh with your wife. Put down the sword, sir. Ladies, have you read the Proverbs? Fighting with the mouth, with the tongue. It is a sword and it doesn't do what you want it to do. It sends them to the corner of the rooftop. Put the sword away. The Lord will fight it a different way. The disciples abide by taking heed to Christ's correction. I want to be much faster on my second point on perseverance. How do, how do these disciples persevere? They're abiding with Christ, but then He's persevering them. Look at verse 3. This is interesting. Uh, look at that word or that name, Judas. So here's my first point here. Jesus removes false disciples. So he perseveres true disciples by removing false disciples. In this case, Judas. And you go, how do you, how do you know who the true disciples are and who the false disciples are? And here's the answer. We often don't. We don't. Christ does, but we don't. Look in, in John 13, 21, it says, One of you will betray me. This is sitting at the table that night. Jesus looked at each, uh, they each looked at each other, uncertain of whom he spoke. So he goes, one of you sitting here is going to betray me. And they go, is it me? Is it me? Is it him? We don't know who it is. They don't know who the false disciple is after three years with Christ. But Christ knew. And he says, the one who I give this morsel of bread is the one who is false. 
And they all learned at that moment who was false. And then Jesus said to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly, go. Jesus sent him out from the true disciples by identifying the faults and separating him from the rest. And I think this is the first uh, seed form of church discipline. Uh, before we get it more clearly in the epistles, in Acts one twenty-five, the whole church gathered together to select another apostle and to make a corporate decision of judgment on Judas. Who it says, quote, Judas turned aside to go to his own place. That's the seed form of church discipline. There's one who is turned on Christ and turned from his church. Let's identify and remove. Now, let me, let's be really clear here because I don't, this is certainly an area we don't want to be confused as to what's being said. Uh, church discipline is never done on a true disciple. Especially one, especially one who's just struggling. Like, I'm not good at this stuff. I can't read my Bible. Sometimes I don't go to church. We're not talking about that person who's trying and they're just not good at it. That they're sorry and they want to get better. That's not who Jesus is dealing with. That's not who Judas is. We're talking about someone who when their sin is brought before them, They blame shift, they push it away, they don't take responsibility, they don't repent, they don't change, they leave Christ, and they leave the fellowship. And the church makes a judgment and says, because they aren't following Christ, they aren't with us. And that's what church discipline is, and Christ does this in Judas' case to preserve the true disciples. Here's the second point, selfless care. Um, I don't know what else to call this, but I'm looking at verse 8 here. It's amazing. He says, I told you that I am he. So he's speaking to the guards. I told you that I'm he. If you seek me, let these men go. And when I read that this week, I go, that's the gospel in a verse. I told you I am he. If you seek me, let these men go. And it's, it's an amazing moment how he protects these 11. Luther even said about it, Jesus not only allowed, uh, not allowing Judas or any of these soldiers to touch his disciples is a mighty exercise of divine power and a miracle that we should marvel at. And it's truly amazing that not one of these men is touched with these thousand soldiers coming up surrounding them. And they're all kind of getting up, rubbing their eyes, cracking their back after their little nap. And, and, and Jesus says, don't touch them. And nobody touches them. Which is something of a, a, an illustration in and of itself. A little uh, picture of how he protects us as his disciples. And that's what John wants us to notice here. Very, very significant These guys fall to the ground at the name of Christ. As they're looking up, Jesus says, who do you seek? Guys, remember from last week. He says his name, they fall to the ground. And as they're still on the ground, he says, who are you seeking? 
I mean, just the authority and the power of Christ in this garden, they're coming to arrest him. He's actually the person who speaks first initially and says, who do you seek? And when they fall, he then, we don't know exactly how this played out. I would imagine they're getting up from that fall and he says to them again, who do you seek? And if you're seeking me, take me and leave these men alone. And he protects his disciples. He promises to do this. Look at verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. You say, what, what word had he spoken? Well, this is in John seventeen twelve. Remember in the prayer to the Father, he said, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost. There's the phrase. That's what he's referring to. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that's Judas, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So he goes, of the ones that you really gave me, that were real disciples, lost none of them. Judas went his own way because he wasn't ever mine. I didn't lose him, in other words. J.C. Ryle said, Christ's protecting power over his believing people is plainly taught in this passage. The care of Jesus over his people provides the means of perseverance and faith as well as the great end of their eternal salvation. And just let me remind us of these promises that Christ gave earlier in this gospel. John 6, 39, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amazing promise. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, that is his disciples, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than I, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. So they're in Christ's hand. They're in the Father's hand. You're secure. And you go, but I'm a great sinner. Jesus says, but I lost none. You say, but I'm also, I'm a hypocrite so often, you don't know what I did. But he's lost none. You say, but you don't, you don't understand the things I've said or the things I've... He's lost none. You say, I'm immoral. There's nothing good in me. He has lost none. I might be the worst of all sinners. He says, I have lost not one. And, and can I just lastly note, uh, this is all in the moment of his death that he's caring this much for others. We talk about humility. Talk about other-oriented, considering others more significant than yourself. Look at Christ in the moment, his worst moment. He's thinking about others. Thinking about his Father. Thinking about the people that the Lord has given him. And how he loves them, he loves us. How he protects them, he protects us. How he... Uh, abided with them and persevered them. He abides and perseveres us. This is Christ's heart displayed for these 11 
And what it's showing us is this is His heart displayed for us if we're His disciples. To the degree in which you know and believe that church, you will abide. You will abide. And let me tell you some good news. You can't mess that up. You can't mess this promise up. He keeps His Word. Not one of them will be lost. He will raise them up on the last day. Amen? Let's thank the Lord for these things. Father, Lord, if left to ourselves, we would all wander and stray and we would walk away, especially in times of trial. So many distractions in this world. So many things that just lure us away and threaten to send us away from You. And yet, You persevere. Your people. Even those with inconsistencies. Even those who are not good disciples. And so Father, we praise You for these things. We tremble that You would be a God who actually keeps Your Word and does what You say You will do. And we lean into these promises. And we thank You for them. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.